I just want to, man, as we were singing that song, I tell you what, the part that stuck out the most on what moves this heart, it says, is it a life laid down? I feel like that's what is the, the hammer on the nail, hitting the hammer on the head right there. In Romans chapter 12, Paul pleads with us. He says, I plead with you in view of God's mercy to lay down your life, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. I tell you, I, want, I just feel like what God has just been speaking to me over our church recently is that we've only scratched the surface. I, I see him with just bags and bags of things that he wants to give unto us as, as a father gives good gifts to his children, but he's trying to, to, to wait until we're ready to receive everything that he has. And when we come to a point where we're willing to lay our lives down on the altar, it moves his heart, church. And I just believe today that there are some of us that find ourselves spiritually frustrated and we feel kind of dull and we feel kind of dry and we're wondering where the fire and the passion is gone. And I believe what God is gonna reveal to us today is gonna hurt a little bit. How many of you know that sometimes when you love someone, you gotta be willing to hurt them? I'm going to say that again. Sometimes when you truly love someone, you have to be willing to hurt them because sometimes hurt is the only way that you're going to get them unstuck. And I believe the Holy Spirit wants to hurt you with truth today so that he can heal you as you receive it and as you repent and as you turn to him. God has a word for you today. Amen. Praise God. I want to invite you to go ahead and be seated. Thank you so much. Father, let's just, let's just pray right now. Father, we thank you, Jesus, for this word, God, that you have prepared for your church today. We thank you, Jesus, for preparing our hearts to receive from you. We thank you, God, that you know how to give good gifts to your children, that you are for us and not against us, Lord. Jesus, we thank you. God, we prepare our hearts. We lay ourselves down. God, I just pray that we would just sit up in a t at attention in our spirits, God, to receive what your Holy Spirit is speaking to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Can you guys just thank our worship team this morning for, for ministering to us? And I think, I don't know, guys, do you want me to try this headset one more time? It is on my end. Huh? What, is it coming through the speakers? I, I, I'm getting yes and no at the same time. Okay. All right. So it could be that I was fooling me because I couldn't hear myself in the monitors. Um, but I thought it was just totally dead out there. Okay. So um, if you can hear me, give me a thumbs up. All right, praise God. So good. I'm glad I didn't have to do the handheld because I feel like it's like trying to juggle with one arm. You know, it's just, I'm not good at it. So, well, praise God. Uh, welcome to church, guys. And welcome back to the series that we took a two-week break from. Okay, uh, we had a guest speaker on the 22nd and Pastor Mark Buckley came in and delivered a timely word for our church. Um, on the 29th, uh, last Sunday, I was, uh, we were all in here together with the kids for Family Fifth Sunday. And now we're continuing our series entitled Circle the Wagons with week number four. Somebody say four. How many letters to the church are there um, in the book of Revelation? Anybody know? How many? Okay, I hear seven. Anybody second that? All in favor? All right, seven letters to the churches, so you kind of have an idea how long this series is going to be, right? And so here we are in week four, um, and this is the church in Pergamum. And this whole idea of circling the wagons, for those of you who maybe missed the first couple of weeks, let me um, just catch you up here. Um, I was having a dream has the Lord ever spoken to you in a dream before? Okay, it wasn't like 
you know, one of those Old Testament dreams or anything like that. But it was one of those dreams where something um, very lifelike and something familiar to you happens, right? It's, it's maybe something you've even experienced before in life, but it just felt so real. And in this dream, I was considering the church and I was just wrestling with feelings in my heart about our church because I look at this church and I see such great potential. I believe that God has put us where we are, not just to simply exist or coexist, but to be the, the light of the world, the city on the hill, to make such an impact on the community around us that, that man, everything changes. The atmosphere, the way people do business changes, families are healed, um, grades are improved. I mean, there's, there's no limit to what God wants to do through us as we step up and, and live out and shine the light of Christ, and in this dream, I'm having a conversation with some of our leadership and some of you as well. And I'm just like, I felt like God was saying to me, 2023 is gonna be a year of taking new territory. And 2023 is gonna be a year of growth where the church finally starts to begin to grow numerically. And it's growing, not because people are coming over from other churches because they like the way we do it over here or because they like how we sing songs, or maybe they like the style of the preacher, um, or whatever. But it's growing because people who were far from God have met him and encountered him here. It's growing because the spirit of God is moving freely over us, in us, and through us, because God reveals himself to people and through people. Amen? It's growing because people are coming to salvation for the very first time. People that were lost are now found. This is 100% what God has for our church. And he so desires to do that, but it's not gonna happen if we sleepwalk our way into the year 2023. We have to be intentional if we want to receive all that God has for us. And so in this dream, I'm kind of giving this speech and the phrase came to me, circle the wagons. And as soon as I said that, I woke up and I was like, I have to write this down. And it goes back to a common scene from the old cowboy Western movies where there's a train of, or a caravan of uh, stagecoaches, you know, horse and carriage traveling through the desert and they enter in a canyon unaware that there's enemies lurking in the cliffs until suddenly an arrow flies and strikes someone in the heart and uh, chaos ensues and there's panic and nobody knows what to do until finally somebody in leadership steps up and says, circle the wagons. And as they circle the wagons, they come together and form a circle. And there's two things that happen is they, they turn inward toward one another which enables them to unify and come up with a plan of action. And then they turn up prepared for battle. See, this is the reason why we gather every Sunday is so that we might spur each other on toward love and good deeds. That as we turn in toward one another, and one of the big reasons why you're sitting around a table today, instead of in rows, shoulder to shoulder, is because we want you to look into the eye of the person across from you and be able to encourage them because each and every one of you who call yourselves believers and followers of Jesus um, are ministers. And so it's not all about this, this vertical ministry coming from the pastor down to the people in the congregation, but it's the prayers and the words of encouragement and the, the uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit and the gifts working in and among us and through us that it's all about. And so we turn in toward one another and it focuses us back on God and his will for our lives. Because here's the truth, and we all know this, don't we? The church is losing today. The church is losing today. There is a battle and eternity hangs in the balance. And we live in a generation that is far from God, that is leaving the church and leaving the faith. And we're losing. But we don't have to lose I'm telling you right now, if God's church will rise up and be the church they were called to be, we're gonna see a great harvest like we've read about in history. There's gonna be a generation that's gonna return unto him. But first, we've gotta circle the wagons. 
So let me recap for you real quickly over the last three weeks, what happens when a church decides they're going to circle the wagons. Number one, when we circle the wagons, we wake up. It's so easy to fall asleep and just go through the motions, right? Maybe you feel like you've been waiting too long. Maybe you feel fatigued. And so you just start to go through the motions. But when we circle the wagons, we wake up. Number two, week two, we talked about how when we circle the wagons, we remember our first love. We reclaim the love that we can lose at times as time goes on. Number three, in week three, we, we learned that when we circle the wagons, we're reminded not to quit, but instead we find the strength to stay faithful. It's what happens when we turn in toward one another and when we turn together collectively towards Christ. Today, my message is entitled, Don't Compromise. Circling the wagons is recognizing where we've compromised and then making the necessary changes I grew up in church. Anybody else grow up in church your whole life? Since as long as I can remember, even, even when I was like uh, before kindergarten, I have memories of, uh, what was it called? Like Awanas? Is that what it's called? Yeah, so it was similar to like a Royal Rangers program. I just remember there were badges and scripture memorization. Just church my whole life. And growing up in youth group as a teenager, um, up in Payson, Arizona, good old Payson, Arizona, uh, my youth pastor was really into the arts and into dramas. And so we had a little drama team. And there was this silly little skit that I will never forget. And it stuck with me to this day. And the way the skit works is that there's a, there's a group of teenagers uh, huddled together and they're hanging out inside of McDonald's. And one of the uh, students comes up to another and says, hey, I'm a Big Mac. And, and his friend says, what are you talking about? You're a Big Mac. Well, look, I'm in McDonald's. He says, that's ridiculous. Just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a Big Mac. Then they switch scenes. At this time, they're in Burger King. Welcome to Burger King, everyone. And that same student comes up and says, hey, look, I'm a Whopper. What do you mean you're a Whopper? Yeah, I'm a Whopper. Look, I'm at, McDon or I'm, at, I'm at Burger King. That's ridiculous. Just because you go to Burger King, it doesn't make you a Whopper. Then suddenly change scenes one more time, and this time they're in church, and they're singing songs of praise, and the preacher gets up and he preaches, and one friend leans over to his other friend. And he says, hey, listen, I'm a Christian. And he goes, what do you mean you're a Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? Well, because I'm in church. And he goes, silly, just because you go to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. And I remember watching that, and as silly as it was, it stuck with me. But we can deceive ourselves into thinking that when we partake in certain activities, that it actually means uh, that our heart is in the right place. But it's a sober reminder that going through the motions doesn't necessarily reflect a changed heart, does it? See, these letters were written to churches, let me say that again. These letters were written to churches and they're full of warnings. And they're reminding us that Jesus is coming back again. If you believe that, can you make some noise this morning? He's coming back. And he's coming back for a church that's ready. He's coming back for a church that accurately reflects him. We are called the body of Christ because we're supposed to represent Jesus on earth. And so these letters were written because there were some inside the church, some that were a part of the fellowship, and they were not okay. But the Savior of the world, the same one that laid down his life on the cross, said, I'm looking at you and I'm judging your actions and your heart is not right. Something needs to change. There, chances are, there are some of you in here this morning and you're not okay. I have to say that to you. I would not be a good shepherd if I would never stand up here behind this pulpit and say, you might not be okay. You might have perfect church attendance and you might not be okay. 
There might be some things in your life. You might, you might be the nicest person in the world. You might even be bold about your faith, but you've got some stuff in your life that is destroying your soul and you're not okay. Just because you're geographically in the right place doesn't mean your heart is in the right place. And so this leads us to a very important question that we're gonna discuss at our tables today. What really makes someone a Christian? And how much does the Christian's conduct really matter? Very complicated question, right? Very theological. But we're gonna take a few moments to discuss this from your point of view. And then when I come back, we're gonna open up the word of God because how many of you know we can depend on the word of God? to lead us in the right direction during these confusing times. All right, so let's discuss this question and then we'll be back. All right, now at my table, we got super deep and theological and and look at how many teenagers we have at our table. How about that? Let's give it up for our young people. They really had a lot of input to share with us today and that's exciting. That's exciting. God's speaking to our young people. Man, so I think we, we all agree that conduct matters. Uh, we all agree that it's not what we do necessarily that makes us a Christian, but what we do is certainly evidence that we're a Christian, right? That uh, we, we live like Christ lived. Remember, Jesus Christ came not just to die on the sin, or die on the sin, Not just to die on the cross for our sins, but also to show us how to live. And so we live like Christ out of gratitude for what we've been forgiven of, for what we've been saved from. But who in here can testify and say, sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard and, and we will go through seasons where it becomes increasingly difficult and the harder Yet sometimes it's hard because culture around us is constantly um, uh, trying to get us to bend to its will and to compromise. And sometimes it's hard just because of what we might be struggling with internally. Sometimes it gets hard because uh, we might be suffering in this world and we're waiting on an answer to prayer that we haven't received yet. But for whatever reason, following Jesus, we will go through seasons where we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death and it gets harder and it feels like he's far away. And and it's in those moments when the temptation to compromise reaches its peak. Amen? Raise your hand if you've been there. So we say things, and I've heard these arguments, and I've had these arguments as a young Christian. We say things like, you know what? I'm I'm very committed to Jesus. I love him. And and yes, I might want to, I still want to enjoy my life though. I've had conversations with teenagers over uh, a decade plus of experience in youth ministry. Well, they'll they'll say things like, yeah, I believe in God and everything. Like, I love Jesus, but right now I just want to be a teenager. Like, I just want to live life. And, you know, and, and one day when I get older, then I'll just give God my whole heart. I'll give him my everything then, like later. But first I want to experience and sample everything the world has right now. I've had... Teenagers say that to me with a straight face. The only difference between them and the adults is the adults don't say it out loud. <laughs> and then there's this, there's this stirring that takes place in us, this, this, uh, these mental gymnastics we play to justify where we are. And we say, you know what, not everybody has to be extreme. Like, like, I love Jesus, but I'm, I don't have to be that person that abstains from watching movies with bad content or listening to music with bad lyrics that are not good for me, that desensitize me to, to dark things. And I don't have to be that person who's constantly Jesus this and Jesus that and, you know, posting on Facebook how much I love Jesus. You know, that's for some people. Those are the people that are called to be pastors and missionaries. But then there's this another category of Christian that exist over here where we're just, just the average Christian and we're just nice people. Okay, this is, what, this is what we're called to be. You're called to be extreme for Jesus. I'm called just to make sure I attend church at least twice a month and pay my tithe. 
That's, that's the way I follow Jesus. So you follow Jesus your way. I'll follow Jesus my way. Can you imagine if I had a conversation like that with my wife? And I'm like, baby, I love you. I really do. And that'll never change. And I promise you, I will never leave you. But I just feel like we should see other people right now. I just, you know, you're still my favorite, but I want to date other girls too. How do you think that's going to work out in my marriage? Even if she agrees to it, like some of these celebrities are right now, it's not going to be a good marriage. It's not going to be a good thing because it's not what God designed. Well, guess what? You were created by him, for him. You belong to him. And when you were lost before Christ, before you professed faith in him, before you laid your life down and you decided to follow him, when you were lost, he paid a price for you. And you belong to him. And yet we live as though we belong to ourselves and we're sharing a piece of our heart with our Savior. And that's just not going to fly. Jesus says that's not okay. This is what so many Christians are telling God. It's like, Jesus, I love you, but it's hard being a Christian these days. You can't expect me to, to be a fanatic. I'll never leave you. I'm not going to turn my back on my faith. I'm going to keep going to church, but I enjoy going to the bar after work and getting a little drunk on Fridays, celebrating the weekend. I, you know what? Sometimes I have casual sex, big deal. Sometimes I look at pornography on my phone. At least I'm not acting those things out, right? The church that we're looking at today is the church of Pergamos, and they face the same temptation, although cranked to 11, as they say in sound, right? Because their culture around them was even more corrupt than ours. But the message that Jesus gives to the church in per uh, Pergamum is don't compromise. And I believe that's the same thing he wants to say to us today as God's church. Don't compromise because compromise is something that will destroy the church from the inside out. Open up your Bibles with me if you would please. And if you would uh, stand for a moment, we're going to make a faith statement. This is, uh, we make this statement almost weekly. But there's, sometimes there's just a message that God brings where it's even more appropriate. This is one of those messages as we lean on the truth of God's word today in a confusing world where there's so many lies swirling around trying to get us to compromise. And so we're gonna make this statement uh, today uh, so that something inside of us will awaken. What, what do each of these letters ends with a, a common phrase? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so when we make this proclamation about this book we hold in our hand, we're opening our spiritual ears, amen? So read this with me. One, two, three. This is my Bible. It is God's word. When I read it and live it, I will become everything it says that I am. Now go ahead and stay standing. We're going to read this together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Whew. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Father, in Jesus' name, illuminate your words. Holy Spirit, speak directly to hearts. 
I've got a lot of things to say that I have put in my notes, but all of those go by the wayside in comparison to what you can speak right to the heart of a person. So Holy Spirit, let us truly have ears to hear what you're saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Today, I wanna give you four ways to overcome the snare of compromise. Four ways to overcome the snare of compromise. Now, again, this letter is written to the church in Pergamum, and I wanna give you a little information about Pergamum. Pergamum was a pretty amazing city. At that time, it was the largest city in Asia. It was a city on a hilltop, which made it this natural fortress. And so, in fact, Kings and wealthy people would come and they would deposit their treasures in Pergamum so that they would be safe from theft. And so this, this city seemed to be impenetrable. And one of the most, it, it, was, it was full of culture. It was full of knowledge. In fact, they boasted the largest library in Asia of that time. Thousands and thousands of copies of books uh, of all types of subjects were found in this library there was this famous hospital and healing sanctuary, pretty creepy and trippy. Think about this, um, where people would come for healing, this hospital and this religious sanctuary, they would uh, take the sick underneath it, kind of like the basement, right? And then they would release serpents to slither over them. And so the serpents would like take this illness, the illnesses supposedly from the people. Today, the medical symbol that we have with the staff and the snakes slithering up it in the wings comes from Pergamum, comes from this pagan practice. Okay, so this is a wild, wild place. It's the epicenter of pagan civilization at that time. And he says in verse 12, this message I'm about to give you comes from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. See, Pergamum was a place where you could come receive a lot of knowledge and a lot of different experiences. It was the city life. And you could hear all types of voices and get all types of opinions. And so when it says when Jesus, and remember, in each of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in such a way that is relevant to the particular church. This is a church that was struggling with compromise and a distortion of the truth. And so he says, this message comes from the one with the sharp two-edged sword, referring to the word of God, the unchanging word of God. Now, the first way we protect ourselves against compromise is to simply trust this, to trust the Bible. We've been going through a series in youth, actually. It's called Finding Truth, talking about how there's so much noise in the world and through social media platforms, you can literally scroll for hours and hours and hear thousands of different opinions that conflict with one another. And it can become so confusing, like, who do I believe? And finally, what, what we end up doing is we end up just attaching ourselves to whatever feels right or to whatever celebrity that we like the most or trust the most and has nothing to do with what's actually true. And it can feel like we're just kind of being tossed around by these waves of deception at the mercy of the sea. But God's word is an anchor in this that it never changes. That he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No one adds a single thing to this book and no one can take anything out of it. No one can tear out a page and cancel out anything that it promises us. It never changes. And if we put our trust in God's word, we'll be anchored in the midst of this deception. It'll protect us from compromise. Hebrews 4.12 describes the word of God. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. That's how Jesus introduced himself, right? Sharp two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. This is really, it's, it's, this is some violent imagery, isn't it? 
I, maybe you're not seeing what I'm seeing, but as I, I see that, I see somebody on the operating table. Because see, if something is wrong internally, something painful has to take place in order, in order for the truth to penetrate. And so just as a surgeon makes an incision exposing the, the intestines or uh, the muscle tissue or the ligaments or whatever, whatever it is that they're operating on, the word of God pierces us when we are in the wrong. The word of God pierces the compromised heart and it hurts, right? Who enjoys being told you're wrong ever? Who embraces that? Oh, thank you so much. That feels so good knowing that um, I'm living in such a way that it is offensive unto God or offensive unto you or that I've been wrong this whole time. I've been living this way my whole life and you tell me I'm doing it wrong. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. But that's what the word of God does and it's necessary. I've had surgery uh, three times. Once on my knee, twice on my ankle. Luckily, we have modern medicine and you go to sleep. But waking up after that surgery sometimes is very, very painful. But what I'm feeling is the result of a healing process that's taking place. And so I have to be thankful for that pain and embrace that pain. And that's what needs to happen in some of our lives. We have compromised. Chances are, guys, I'm just telling you right now, this is America I think if we look hard at ourselves, we're gonna find some compromise. And today the spirit is gonna challenge you to deal with it. He's gonna say, look, I know it doesn't seem very nice to let me come at you with the sword of my word. And it seems like it's gonna be painful and it'd be easier for you to just to deflect and make excuses. But if you'll let this penetrate your heart, I'm gonna save you from the the damaging work that this compromised sin can do in your life. And so it's so important as we, as we come against false doctrine and teachings and compromise that we cling to the word of God. This is why he introduces himself this way to the church in Pergamum. In verse 13, he says, I know where you live, the city where Satan has his throne. When I said that earlier, I heard a couple of people go, ooh, <laughs> right? That sounds pretty bad. Like, why is this where Satan has his throne? Like, what kind of city was this? What kind of town was this? Well, first of all, this was like a pagan god buffet. They had a temple to every ma major pagan deity of that time. And so people would come to Pergamum, and it's, it's like visiting Hollywood, right? You go there to see the stars, and you can pay for these tours. So, hey, that's where Brad Pitt lives, right? That's where Tom Cruise lives. You can go around, and they give you this map, and you can just mark where all, each house that you see as you go and see it. And so people would come to Pergamum and like, I need healing. Well, here's the God that heals. And so let's go visit his temple and pray for healing. Or maybe you're there because uh, you want to be prosperous and, and fertile. You want to start a family. So you're going to go see the God of fertility and visit this temple and, and worship, worship in this temple. Or maybe you're just there for a good time. And so you're going to visit this God that's just a sensual God. And you're going to drink wine and you're going to partake in the pagan worship. Right? Everything is there within walking distance, right? It's like the strip at Las Vegas, right? It's just all around. Can you imagine planting a church right there, right in the middle of the mess of it? This is what they were up against. Um, it's just a strong pull and a strong temptation all the time. Some have even speculated that when it says Satan's throne is there, it's actually referring to the great altar of Zeus. Because Zeus was like the God of all gods, right? in pagan culture. He was the king of kings and he was their Lord of Lords, right? And so perhaps it was referring to a specific place. Like, look, this place is so wicked that there's an altar unto this false God who claims to be the highest of them all. And on top of all of that, persecution had risen to the level of death in martyrdom. What a difficult place to have a church. Yet he says in verse 13, you remained loyal to me. The original translation is a little bit more closer to saying, you hold fast my name. According to Hebrew notions, a name is inseparable from the person to whom it belongs. 
And they were clinging to everything that name implied. So when he's saying, you hold fast to my name, you're saying, you're saying, I'm trusting fully in who Jesus said he is. In spite of all these other voices that are claiming this God can give you healing and this God can give you prosperity. I'm clinging to everything he said he was, that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. See, this doesn't sound like a compromising church, does it? On top of that, it says, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred, Antipas was believed to be the first Christian in Asia who was killed for following Christ. Tradition says that he was actually roasted in a bronze kettle. What a way to go, right? To be somebody's stew. I don't think they ate him, but that's creepy. And so in the, in the face of all this, now they've got this person this Christian leader that was martyred because of what they stood for. Imagine the pastor of your church being gunned down in this neighborhood. What would, you, what would that do to your faith? How would you respond? Would you be hesitant to come back to the next church outreach <laughs> or to the, to the next community event? Yet this church here held on even in the face of the worst kind of persecution. But he says, I have a few complaints against you. We need to stop and think about that for a moment. I have a few complaints against you because what that tells us is that no one is beyond temptation and Jesus doesn't overlook our sin because of the things that we've done. There is no security that we can gain from anything we do. I want to say that again. There is no security that you gain from anything that you do. So what was his complaint? He said, you tolerate some, there's that word again. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Tolerate. We get in trouble when we start tolerating things that have no place in our lives. He says, you tolerate some whose teaching is like Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up Israel by idols and sexual sin. Number two, we fight against the snare of compromise by being careful who we listen to. Be careful who you listen to. Who are you giving your ear? See, he's calling out people that were trying to lead the people astray trying to get them to make compromises, telling them things that are wrong are actually right and confusing the body of Christ. And he compares them to Balaam. This is a fascinating story with talking donkeys and just crazy stuff. You should read your Bible. Very interesting. But throughout the book of Numbers, we, we, we meet this man um, named Balaam who's like this false prophet who legitimately hears from God but all he cares about is money. And so he's paid by this king to curse God's people, by this Midianite king named Balak. And he says, I see Israel coming and they have this mighty army and they've got this reputation for slaying tens of thousands. And so I want you, because I know you have this gift, right? Of hearing from God and I want you to talk to God and I want you to curse these people because we're afraid of them. Three times Balak actually tried to call down a curse because he wanted the money. Three times he failed because God stopped him. He said, no, you will not curse my people. And in fact, he turned around and he blessed God's people all three times. But guess what? I mean, if I experienced that, I would think that I'd be like, what was I thinking trying to curse God's people? Let me get my stuff together. But Balaam didn't quit. He's like, if I can't curse them, maybe I can get them to stumble on their own. And so what he did is he got together these beautiful Midianite women, hotties. He's like, put on your best makeup, your skimpiest outfits, and I want you to go seduce the men of Israel and, and, and entice them to eat the food in the temple that you're sacrificing to your gods. Introduce them to your way of life and get them to commit sexual sin with you. That's exactly what happened. And as a result, it invoked the wrath of God and tens of thousands were killed as God poured out his wrath 
upon his people. See, the enemy would love to just be able to simply put a curse on us and call it quits. Amen? But as Jesus says, this is my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, there's nothing the enemy can do from the outside to come in and come against us and overcome us. But the spirit of Balaam is alive and well today. Number three, beware of the enemy within. Beware of the enemy within. See, it wasn't a mighty army that defeated the Israelites, but it was the enemy of self. As they began to compromise, they self-destructed. See, we can be so hyper-focused on outside threats, and, but, but if we're not just as vigilant to guard our hearts against the threat from within, we too will fall. As a church, we can be very, very active in ministry. We can participate in the different fountain teams in hopes of winning this battle for, for, for souls. But if we don't address the enemy within, we're gonna stumble and we're gonna fall. And we see it happening in a very public form, don't we? It's happening all around us. Mega church pastors are coming out and they're compromising the word of God. And they're saying, my whole life I've preached it this way, but now I've suddenly gotten a different revelation and I'm gonna preach it this way. But the words have not changed. It happens through compromise. Compromise is the greatest threat to America today. And to this day, I believe there are two areas of compromise that plague our church, and they're just the same thing. The devil's up to nothing new. For the Israelites, it was idolatry and sexual immorality. Today, it's idolatry and sexual immorality. It's materialism, it is um, sexual immorality, it's pornography, it's lust, it's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. None of that has changed. And the effect of compromise is taking its toll on today's church. Check this out. According to Pew Research, 57% of Christians claim that sex between unmarried adults, and as long as they're in a committed relationship, is at least sometimes acceptable. Fifty percent of Christians surveyed believe that casual sex between consenting adults who are not in a committed relationship is at least sometimes acceptable. Something that if you would have surveyed churches 40, 50 years ago, we had very much different results. So what has happened over the years? Have the words on these pages changed? Have we just learned how to better interpret them? Or have we allowed our hearts to become compromised? Why would the church start to tolerate these things? Sometimes it's because Following Jesus is hard. There's always going to be pressure to conform. How is the American church experiencing that pressure to conform today? We see it all over. There's pressure for leaders to come out and be like, okay, I used to be against this, now I affirm this. And the church is dying because of it. He says in verse 15, you have some Nicolaitans who follow the same teaching. We talked briefly about who the Nicolaitans were. And we're seeing here that it's the same teaching that they're following. But the word, as you break it down, uh, means um, to rule over the people. And so this is specifically talking about these are leaders that in a desire to have influence are compromising God's word. And a desire to gather together a crowd with itching ears. They change what they teach. It's a scary time. It's a scary age for the church to be in. See, the teaching was that it's not necessary to separate yourself from the, from the world to be a Christian. As long as you believe. Have you ever heard somebody talk like that? Yeah, I smoke and drink and party and sleep around, but I love Jesus. I go to church. God knows my heart. That's the one that always gets me when somebody says that. Like, do you hear what you just said? God knows your heart. 
God knows your heart better than you know your heart. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So maybe you have this idea of where your heart is and who it belongs to, but if you take a closer look at your treasure, you realize it's been misplaced. So often in youth ministry, I've had conversations with young people that come up and they'll ask you questions about relationships, like how far is too far, right? How far can I go with my boyfriend or girlfriend and still be a Christian, right? Or is it okay if I partake in these things as long as I don't go past this point? And the problem with that is if you start asking yourself, can I do this and still be a Christian? You're thinking like a Nicolaitan. You're thinking like someone who wants to separate the lifestyle from the heart, which is something that is impossible to do. And it takes a lot of work convincing yourself that that's possible. It's a lot like this. See, when we come to Christ, he makes us clean. Amen. He removes our impurities because it's something we could never do. Like we can't, we can't do enough good deeds to make up for the sins that we've committed in the past, right? And so what we have is we have sin in our life and only the Savior can take it away. So he takes it away. Now as followers, we can still make the choice to go back to those things. We can still habitually go back to those things and find ourselves in bondage again from the very things Jesus died on the cross for us to be free from. And so we have the weight of this sin layer here hanging over us. And within every Christian is a a fountain of life promised to us in John chapter four that it would become within us a a bubbling spring. And when we are born again and we lay our lives down, we give our lives to Jesus, we get this living water deep within our soul. But sin, if we invite it and embrace it into our lives, then what it does is it forms this blockage, this upper layer around us. And what we do is we try to convince ourselves that the two can mix together. And that's when we start making up those excuses. Like, do you know how many missions trips I've been on? Right? Do you, know, do you know how many teams I serve on at my church? Like, I don't think there's a team I don't serve on. You know, I sing on the worship team. I, see, I serve in Fountain Kids. I help out with Fountain Youth. I help out in the sound booth, whatever it is. And so what happens is the stirring and the activity in our life is convincing us that the union is possible. Because as I stir, you can kind of see the two seem to appear to be blending together. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. This is not sustainable. But what ultimately happens is we allow sin to remain in our life. Things begin to settle and there's a separation that begins to take place. Suddenly, I don't know who I am. Am I this version of myself? Or am I this version of myself? Is this me? Or is this simply the mask that I wear? See, our activity cannot justify the sin that is in our life. Only Jesus justifies us. And he doesn't justify us so we can remain imprisoned to it. And around and around we go as if activity saves us. And finally, a separation. A split takes place. There's a duality to our relationship with Jesus. We become two different people. Ever been there? Be honest, ever been there? Like you feel so lost. I don't even know who I am anywhere. How did I go this far? How did I get so caught up in this? It's the result of long-term compromise. And what is so devastating about this church is God has more that he wants to pour into us but he's waiting for us to give him those impurities, those things that we've allowed to become a part of our lives so that he can pour out everything that he has for us. Corporately speaking, church, if we're going to move forward and become the church he's called us to be, if we're gonna be the church that's the city on the hill, if we're gonna be the church where the presence of God just presides, right, and we just experience him in such a powerful way, there's gonna be some repentance that needs to happen. And that's number four. We overcome the snare of compromise through repentance. 
So there's two categories that he calls for here. He says, repent of your sin or I will come and fight against them. And so he's talking about the church as a whole. And then he's talking about the individual who's caught up in a life of sin and a heart that is not surrendered to Christ. As a church, there needs to be a corporate repentance where we say, God, we repent for tolerating these things. And so we can tolerate them in the form of maybe the pastor doesn't talk about it, right? Because I, I know this is a small enough church, right? That I kind of know what some of your guys' habits and hangups are, right? And so I could avoid those topics as to not offend because I love you, right? And I don't want to hurt you. Or, or maybe I want the church to grow. And if I preach on this, they might leave. Amen? And so that's a way we tolerate it. Those of us who are leaders in the church, we fail to address these things. We fail to come along our brothers and sisters in love, of course, not in condemnation, but to come, to come along them and say, listen, like, what are you doing? This isn't what God has for you. We're tolerating it. We need to repent of that. And number two is the individual repentance. Pastors rarely teach on repentance these days. If you look around, some of the most successful churches in the world, I'm not going to name them because, first of all, I'm not the judge. And many of these churches I've never been to. Okay, so that's a disclaimer. Okay, so, and it's, it's difficult for me as a human to say this church isn't a real church and this one is. A lot of people are quick to do that and they have YouTube channels, right? I'm not that person. However, I do fear and have concern for some of these mega churches when it seems like they've simply become motivational houses with motivational speakers, that church has been reduced to a place we come to just get enough fuel to get through the hard times in life. When in reality, it's a place we're supposed to come and die. It's a place where we're supposed to come and lay down ourselves for his sake because of what he has done for us. The top sermon titles right now on YouTube just listen to these titles. When the battle chooses you, when anxiety attacks, how to build your vision from the ground up, run after your destiny, removing the barriers to destiny, the best is next, stronger than you think. These might be fantastic sermons. But is it possible that some of the popularity is coming not from what the content of these sermons is, but for what these sermons do not have? That they don't challenge us to confront the sin that we carry within us. We have created an entire uh, uh, category of Christianity that only exists in our own minds. And that's the casual Christian the compartmentalized Christian that says, I've got my life in this world and I've got my life in Christ. And Jesus says quite clearly to the church in Pergamum, this cannot happen. This simply should not be. And he concludes his letter similar the way he does to the other churches. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Every Christian has ears to hear, but we have to make the decision to listen. Sometimes we go like this because what's being said hurts. My kids do that sometimes, it's infuriating. You start lecturing them and they're just like, okay, okay, okay. And I'm like, are you serious? Like you did this, own up to it. You need to hear this. You need to hear the truth. Because if I just stop talking about it and just brush it under the rug, you're even more likely to repeat this again and you're gonna remain trapped in the same pattern of rebellion. But if you'll hear what I'm saying, and not just endure it, right? 
Sometimes we do that in church, don't we? We sit there and we're like, okay, I'll I'll just get through this. I'll sit through this. Next week, it'll be a warm, fuzzy message, right? That motivates me to keep fighting and take hold of my destiny or that God wants me to get that promotion or God wants to bless my bank account. I just gotta sit through this difficult time where they're challenging the way I live. Who do you think you are meddling in my life? And what we're doing is we're covering up our spiritual ears. I plead with you this morning to open up your ears, not to what Pastor Joe is saying, but what the Holy Spirit would say to your heart. Because I believe he wants to reveal to you. He wants to cut you and lay you open so that you can see what lies within you that needs to be dealt with. Why? Because he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he's willing to offend you this morning. Aren't you thankful for those friends and family in your life that are willing to offend you? that are willing to give you the tough love. Tell you what, you got somebody you love and you care about, you're certainly gonna try to be kind and sweet to them. But when you see their life turning the wrong direction and you see them heading for pain and destruction, suddenly you change your tone. It's like watching your kid walk over to a hot stove. It starts like this, don't touch it, it's hot. Don't touch it, it's hot. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. It's hot. The closer they get, the more intense you become. And I believe there are some of us that have gotten dangerously close to some things. And our conscience is in danger of becoming seared to the point where we have become hardened to sin and desensitized to it. And as a result, it's serving as like a cork in the fountain that's supposed to be springing out of us. Some of us in here were wondering like, why does going to church feel like a chore? Why does spending time with Jesus feel like, what happened to the days when I wanted to want to love Jesus, when I wanted to hunger and thirst for righteousness, when I wanted to live holy because my God is holy and I wanna please him and I wanna draw others to him and I wanna be an example of Jesus on this earth. Sometimes it's because compromise has settled in upon our hearts. He closes with kind of a bizarre sounding promise, but it's still a promise. So we better dig into it and see what it is he's promising us. He says, I will give to each one who is victorious. I will give some manna that has been hidden away in heaven. If you know the story of manna, you know when the Israelites were in the wilderness, they were hungry and there was no food to eat and God provided by actually bringing bread from heaven called manna. Manna actually means, what is it? Because that's what they said, what is it? They didn't know what it was. They just knew it was from God and it was edible. And they would take it and they would eat it and it sustained them. And so what he's saying is that he would provide for you a meal that actually satisfies. See, this manna is for those who are victorious. That's those who refuse to indulge in their fleshly appetite, because guess what? It doesn't satisfy. Now we know sin is fun, right? We know sin is certainly pleasurable, but sin leaves us feeling empty every single time. Nobody can tell you differently. You'll always crave more. It'll always fall short. And he says to those of you who are victorious, I'm gonna give you something that is so so satisfying, it can't even compare. And then he says, I'll give to each one a white stone. What in the world? And it says engraved on that stone will be a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Lots of opinions on what this can mean, but here's a few of them. A white stone in ancient times was deposited into a container in court as a verdict of not guilty. And so the jurors would be like, here's my vote, white stone, he's not guilty. So maybe it refers to the innocence that's given to us freely because of Jesus. 
also engraved stones with our name on it or with people's names on it was given to the victors of the games in the arena. So like a trophy, a reward for being victorious. Thirdly, engraved stones were sometimes used as invitations. They would etch your name on a piece of marble and it was an invitation to these high-end exclusive banquets. Maybe there's a layer of all three of those possibilities tied into this. But what we see here is that this is a special invitation to something exclusive that is only given for those that said no to the things of the world because they truly believed God when he said, I've got something better for you. What does it mean that it says that there's a name written on it that no one else knows except for you and God? Not sure exactly, but man, that just sounds so personal, doesn't it? Something so special. Maybe, maybe it's kind of like that, uh, that nickname that you have and nobody else calls your son or daughter by that nickname except you. It's something so personal and so special, something shared, intimate. Think about that. The creator of the universe is gonna offer something to you that is unique unto you. There's a reward for walking with Christ. It's not all about denying the flesh to prove you're worthy. No. We deny the flesh because we've made a trade. We've traded the life this world has to offer for a much greater everlasting one that he offers. Would you stand with me this morning? As you stand, I just want you to take a moment to consider today where you have compromised. I can't point it out to you, but I believe right now the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you areas in your life where the, the result of compromise has meant that your heart has grown a little cold towards Christ or maybe towards other people. That some of the frustrations you're experiencing maybe are the result of compromise. And there's, there's things that you need to come to the altar and you need to leave them there today. And if that's you, you're here today and you're like, yep, Holy Spirit's convicting me of something right now. It's holding me back. It's weighing me down. And you want to respond like it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that let us set aside the things that weigh us down, especially the sin that so easily entangles us so that we can run the race with endurance. If that's you and you say, hey, I've got something to lay down today, would you just lift up both hands this morning? Amen. Praise God. Everybody, hey, we got our eyes open. Everybody look around. Look around at the hands that are up. You're not alone. Not alone. So the team is gonna lead us, and I just invite you um, uh, we, we have communion elements out today. Uh, and so there's a table close to you with the communion elements. And as the team begins to lead us, I want you to get your communion elements, come back to your tables. And I want you to take a moment before you take communion, take a moment to have a conversation with God and lay some things down. Let him expose areas of compromise in your life. Let his sword of his word penetrate you today so that you can be healed. And then I'll come back and then I'll give us more instructions about communion. Amen. So team, go ahead and lead us. Is it a fragrance that I pour my oil out? Is it a life laid down? Is it a song I sing? Is every melody just tell me what moves you? Tell me what moves you? Is it a fragrance that I pour my oil out? Is it a life laid down? Tell me what moves you. 
idol. God, thank you for just exposing and revealing to us where we have compromised because you have come that we might have abundant life. So Father, remove everything that robs us of that life you paid for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to invite you just to go ahead and be seated at your tables. And today we're just going to close out individually at our tables. Your host is going to lead you into a time of communion and prayer. And whenever your table wraps up in prayer, um, you're free to go. And so there'll be no official end to the service. Um, But we're just believing that God is going to move through you um, at your tables today. So God bless you guys. Have an incredible time with the Lord at your tables. And we'll see you again next time.